Welcome to another episode of The Cognitive Dissident. Part of my problem with our current culture is the flattening down of everything into power imbalances. Everything is viewed through this lens, which is simplistic, on its face. But even if I believe that power dynamics is the sum total of all human interaction, which I don't, it's still quite clear to me that whomever is pointing out the power differential is deciding what types of power should be included in order to make their case, which is usually a case for their maltreatment and victimization. So the lens of power dynamics really becomes more of a funhouse mirror, a distorted mirroring back of the complainant's worldview, not an objective, reliable tool for the evaluation of fairness and justice. It seems that whatever the agenda, the people who are promoting it tend to weight things so that they can claim to always be on the short end of the power dynamic stick. The right-wing media like to pretend that this preoccupation with power dynamics is a liberals-only phenomenon. However, one need not look hard at all to find their own cherry-picked, utterly lopsided and distorted examples. Take, for example, the purported horrific persecution of white Christians in America. That the dominant ethno-religious group could gnash its teeth and indulge in an utterly unfounded persecution complex, despite all evidence that it's still at the top of the heap, is truly breathtaking. What's really going on, of course, is that their white Protestant hegemony has been breaking down for years and has been forced more and more to accommodate other ethnic and religious groups. These groups only want a level playing field. Sharing power is, of course, not the right to persecute others. But to the dominant group, this desire for fairness is reconfigured as a gross assault on their rights and their way of life. Another example, when right-wingers wail about so-called activist judges, they simply mean judges that rule against them. The Supreme Court's massive overreach in the recent cases, like the Texas abortion clinic case, Citizens United, their dismemberment of the Voting Rights Act, and even Bush v. Gore are all examples of activist judges. Those decisions, some of which completely overrode states' rights, some of which completely ignored settled precedent, were not troubling in the least to these very same people. Instead, these judges were not activist in their minds at all, but heroes. So, reality is in the eye of the beholder, which means that power imbalances are, too. This is no more evident than in gender politics, wherein men are seemingly assumed to have all the power. It's actually amazingly ironic to hear some women say, practically in the same breath, that men are led around by their dicks, but that women have no power. So today we're going to dig deeper into what constitutes power, and in the case of sexual seduction, what constitutes seduction, and even what constitutes that much more loaded term, grooming. Our fable begins with a geeky, shy, introverted 15-year-old boy, me. Somehow, though I was all of those things, and also a pacifist who often got beaten up, and an agnostic from a Jewish family who not only attended an Episcopal school but sang in the choir there, I still managed to maintain some semblance of sanity and to have some friends. Curiously, even way back then, I had left and right-wing friends who always seemed to chafe at each other, even then, I seemed incapable of hewing to a party line. The year was 1974. The school was St. Anne's School in Brooklyn Heights, a so-called school for gifted children. I was gifted, but what I didn't know then was that most, if not all, gifted kids have deficits that tend to equalize things. We're gifted and burdened. I suffered from dyslexia and dysgraphia, ADD, and social anxiety disorder. It was not an easy time for me. In fact, I was pretty miserable. 
The next year, in fact, I got a high school equivalency degree and fled to Simon's Rock College in the Berkshires, where, although still pretty miserable, you can't run away from yourself after all, I was exposed to many new kinds of people, art, drugs, and especially music. But the last couple of years at St. Anne's, I made an interesting friend. We weren't super close, but we talked privately a fair amount, and she even invited me to an absolutely epic birthday party, which took place at her amazingly luxurious apartment on Manhattan's Upper East Side. Let's call her Gwen. At 15, she was the envy of most of the other girls and the preoccupation of most of the boys, myself included. She was tall and had the blonde hair, complexion, face, and body of a sort of idealized California beach babe. She had the hips, breasts, and ass of a woman, not a girl, and she often wore hot pants, short skirts, and camisoles that left little to the imagination. I think almost every guy in my grade was madly hot for her. In retrospect, a lot of things are clear to me now. It's clear she was insecure, though to a young geek like me, she appeared anything but. It's also clear that her parents were pretty disengaged, enmeshed in their careers, relationships, and social climbing. I'm not sure if I ever met either of them, but if they were at her legendary birthday party, they left no impression whatsoever. To my empirical gaze, even with almost 50 years of hindsight, Gwen wielded a lot of power in some ways, and was powerless in others. And I have no doubt that the power she wielded was used to compensate for her deep inner feelings of powerlessness and loneliness. She was gifted, physically being stunningly beautiful, but she was also highly, highly intelligent. And alas, many males are completely intimidated by intelligent females. Intelligence should be a source of attraction in both genders, evolutionarily speaking, but often it's not, and I've seen girls and women tragically dumb themselves down in front of boys and men in order to appear more attractive. Intelligence, regardless of gender, often brings a deeper existential melancholy as a darker gift, one that seems to have haunted her to the end of her life, for Gwen died some years ago of a drug overdose. I have never been able to ascertain whether it was intentional or accidental. I was often called the opener in my family for my ability to get people to open up and share their inner selves. I don't know where this ability comes from, but it's still quite in evidence and a powerful aid in the healing work I've done. My last year at St. Anne's, my opening magic worked on Gwen. We became real confidants, and early in the school year, Gwen confided in me a goal she was dead set on achieving. She was going to, quote, bag a teacher this year, end quote, i.e. seduce one of our teachers. It was already quite clear from our conversations that Gwen was not only no longer a virgin, but quite sexually active, yet the audaciousness of this goal was breathtaking. Now, maybe all of this is hard for you to believe. After all, she was only 15. I would caution you to understand that these things come and go in cycles. During the 60s and 70s, latchkey kids like us started smoking pot and cigarettes and experimenting with sex as well at incredibly young ages. These days, the pendulum has swung the other way, and the number of virginal college students and even newlyweds has skyrocketed. But it's always been a pendulum. During the Great American Westward Expansion, kids as young as 12 married and set out in Conestoga wagons to settle unknown territories, an almost impossible to believe reality when viewed through today's lens. So at the tender age of 15, sex was something many of my classmates indulged in. I had even been to parties where girls my age, girls I'd never met before, had invited me upstairs to private rooms for sex. In a way, the mid-70s still had a lot of the swinging 60s ethos, at least where I grew up in Bohemian Brooklyn. 
Gwen was fully part of this milieu, but when she told me of her plan, I was shocked by its ambition and audacity, not its sexual underpinnings. Again, it was part of a piece. Teachers and students fraternized, smoked pot together, and a couple even married their students once their students reached their majority. A pretty shocking, shabby state of affairs. We'll add to that parents, teachers, and administrators all having affairs with abandon, and you get the picture. St. Anne's in the late 60s, and at least until I left in the mid-70s, was a no-holds-barred hotbed of licentiousness. There were essentially no adults in the room. This atmosphere was generated from the top down, as the charismatic founder and headmaster of St. Anne's, Stanley Bosworth, was a slut of epic proportions, who attempted to seduce every female student and teacher he found attractive, including my mother, who taught English there for a time. Stanley eventually divorced his wife and married a young woman from my own class, more than 30 years his junior. Gwen began her campaign with our science teacher, a man I'll call Bill. When she told me that he was her target, I laughed out loud. Brought up with parents who had many gay friends, it was readily apparent to me that not only was Bill gay, but quite ostentatiously gay. He was not closeted in the least. He was loud and proud. Apparently, Gwen had no gaydar, so I disabused her of this notion and she changed targets. Her next target was a young, handsome, charismatic teacher I'll call Paul. Paul was a great teacher, and he treated us as adults, as intelligent, curious beings. I loved him in his class, and I always sat in the front. Pretty soon, Gwen joined me there. She'd sit right next to me in the front row and sprawl her legs open, her miniskirt riding up her thighs, sucking on a pencil eraser and saying, Hi, Paul, in the kind of breathy voice Marilyn Monroe used to serenade JFK on his birthday. Her flirtation was beyond overt. Her intentions were clear, and virtually nothing was left to the imagination. This full-court press of hers lasted for some indeterminate time before Paul foolishly yielded to temptation and had a short dalliance with her. I don't know all the details. I only know that it was stupid and irresponsible and illegal, and that he came to his senses very quickly and ended it almost as soon as it had begun. I can make excuses for Paul. He was young. He'd come from the Midwest, a nice, somewhat square Lutheran kid, and had landed in a hothouse of blazing sexuality where there were no rules at all. I'm sure it was all overwhelming. On top of that, the most gorgeous and womanly-looking girl in our class was doing everything short of a striptease in front of him to get him into bed. But I don't excuse him. I add these details because they are germane, especially to the narrative that later developed after Gwen's death. But I do not excuse him. What he did was illegal and immoral and wrong. Full stop. But that does not stop me from asking the question. Who was grooming whom and who had the power? After Gwen's death, some years after, a post suddenly appeared on the St. Anne's faculty and students page on Facebook. A post by a classmate of mine, a woman I'd probably known since the age of six when we both went to public school PS29 before either of us ever got to St. Anne's. In it, she produced a narrative of an innocent, quote, child, unquote, mercilessly groomed and seduced and destroyed by a pedophile predator. Being the big-mouthed idiot that I am, and also being obsessed with what I perceive as justice and injustice, I waded in. I pointed out that pedophile was a completely inappropriate term, that Gwen was hardly a child and sexually active on her own, as was most of my class, and that she'd actively planned and carried out the seduction of Paul, not the other way around. Moreover, to insist that she was powerless was absurd. 
Yes, he was an adult. She may have wanted to sleep with him because of deep psychological feelings of being unloved by her father, etc., etc. Yes, she was underage, and what he did was wrong, unequivocally. But is that it? Must we paint a wildly inaccurate narrative that he was in control and groomed her, and that she was an innocent who bore no responsibility and had no power? The truth is, they both bore responsibility. Yes, he bore more. He was an adult, and she was 15, and Conestoga pioneers notwithstanding, the 15-year-old brain is not fully developed by any means. Its moral calculus, its ability to understand downstream repercussions, is highly limited. She was a young, probably horrifically lonely kid, and he was a man, albeit a young one. But she did have power. Her onslaught of in-your-face seduction was grooming in the fullest, darkest sense of the word. She took someone who was a dedicated teacher, who was not having sex with his students, not even flirting with them, and overwhelmed him. I remember his deer-in-the-headlights look well. He was out of his depth, and yes, helpless, being led around by what is often called the little brain. Many women do not or will not understand how powerful the male libido is, and how powerfully it responds to stimuli. It's not rational at all. Hell, it evolved before we were human, before we even developed prefrontal cortexes. It's down there in the limbic system, which, as anyone who's ever been terrified or enraged can tell you, does not respond to either logic or moral imperatives. It is a biological imperative, primal and incredibly powerful. So let's be real here. Women have lots of power. I am not arguing they are as powerful in our society as men are. That's a discussion for another day, and a complex one at that. If you're curious about a nuanced discussion of that subject, you might check out the book, The Myth of Male Power. But I will argue here, quite strenuously, that women have a great deal of power inherent in their sexual allure, and that they use it all the time. But because of the ingrained victim mentality of many women, they deny this. They insist that the power dynamic is one-dimensional and flows only in one direction. So we get the predatory scumbag Harvey Weinstein as the poster boy for the abuse of male power, though curiously his female enablers are largely let off the hook. But the gold digger who marries the billionaire and manages to get him to disinherit his kids, the politician or socialite or Hollywood star who sleeps her way to the top is somehow not factored into the equation of power dynamics. These days, women twerk for clicks on YouTube, perform private porn as self-employed entrepreneurs, not hapless pawns of pimps, on OnlyFans, and Beyonce et al. gyrate for all their worth on stage, shaking their money makers all the way to the bank. Ironically, most of the more strident brand of feminists vociferously defend this self-objectification of women's bodies. It's cool when women do it on their own and oh-so-evil when men are involved. I call bullshit on that. What are these liberated women who objectify their own bodies teaching little girls about female empowerment? I well remember a YouTube video many years ago. It was a dance class of very young girls, probably around age six, all dressed in bright, lipstick-red bikinis, gyrating their hips and chests obscenely to a Beyoncé song. It had been posted by the dance school that had taught them and reposted by many of the proud parents. I was utterly aghast. I thought of this sexual objectification of children as a crime. I thought child services should be called in, and here it was being applauded. I remember having a similar reaction when I first saw pictures and video of John Benet Ramsey. I saw this child tarted up with massive amounts of makeup in a cowgirl outfit, shaking her ass like the cowboy playgirl from Apocalypse Now. 
I wanted to vomit. I thought, is this some weird child pornography subculture I've never heard of? Of course, it was a subculture, but one of uber-Christian, upper-middle-class white suburbanites. A subculture that spread outward to trailer trash with stars in their eyes that was later further popularized by the evil, odious cable TV show Toddlers and Tiaras. All of it stems from the pre-fascistic subversion of healthy, connected sexuality into puerile, abusive sexuality that America, like pre-Nazi Germany in the 1920s, glories in. And it's so, so very odd to me that middle American white Christians, even evangelicals, are blind to it. But that's what repression does. It gives the shadow enormous power. My philosophizing notwithstanding, there it was, and is. Mothers pimping their little girls for beauty contests and heavily sexualized dance recitals. And it's all accepted by many as totally healthy and normal, though it strikes me as obscene. But the icing on the cake is those feminists who contort themselves into pretzels justifying this shit. I well remember them attacking Monica Lewinsky as a predator. They liked Bill Clinton, and he was a liberal like they were, so Lewinsky was suddenly cast in an almost biblical role as Delilah. Or in more modern terms, she was slut-shamed by these feminists. And I was the guy going, hey, wait a minute, if this guy were a Republican, you'd be raining hellfire down on him and calling her an innocent victim. But my views on Lewinsky have changed somewhat, too. In every interview, I find her to be a delightfully intelligent and thoughtful woman. And she always makes the case that their relationship was consensual, but that it was also wrong of Bill Clinton to have sex with her. I agree with all this, but again, only some of the power dynamic is reflected back from her mirror. Yes, he was the president of the United States of America, and she was a kid barely out of high school. Yes, I get that. But... She also wielded a type of primal power that reason falls before all too easily. The biblical view of men being weak and women being manipulative is a caricature, to be sure, but one based on biological truths. Most men, not all, but most, will abandon reason, morality, sanity, if a woman they are sufficiently attracted to goes after them full force. You can call this weak, pathetic, or superficial, but you'd be wrong. Men are no more superficial than women are, and no more weak. Women will fall for the tall, dangerous-looking bad boy with the deep voice and broad shoulders, 50 to 1, over the short, geeky guy with the squeaky voice. And I've seen women completely bowled over by arrogant bad boy pricks who pressed these women's buttons with ease. But that said, all in all, yes, I find women more adept at emotional manipulation than men. We men are, by and large, simpler beasts in my eyes. I'm speaking on average, of course. Are all women manipulative? Of course not. Men are more aggressive and have a higher propensity for violence than women on average, but not all men are violent either. And of course, there are incredibly manipulative men and incredibly violent women in this world. But cliches exist because they hold a grain of truth. And the feminine proclivity for what we call feminine wiles is just such a cliche for just such a reason. Women seem to intrinsically know of their sexual power over men, and perhaps instinctively often know precisely how to effectively wield it. Those who deny it are being disingenuous. Sex, attraction, desire, transcend reason, or perhaps better said, they short-circuit it. So men and women both can wield immense power in this area, power that takes advantage of subconscious primal impulses. And that, of course, means that both men and women can groom their targets. 
My stand during this online brouhaha was that Paul and Gwen were both responsible. He was more responsible because he was an adult, but to paint her as an innocent, wayward child was absurd and incredibly intellectually dishonest. Again and again, there is this postmodern urge to make everything binary. No grays, no nuance, and yes, no shared responsibility. We've just got good girl and bad man in this case. Except we don't. Gwen got her way. She went after Paul with a vengeance, and she betted him. He realized what a terrible mistake he'd made quite quickly and ended things barely after they'd begun. To hear some of my classmates, this affair destroyed her life and was the inciting incident that led to her tragic death decades later. This is an amazingly simplistic narrative. A more interesting question might be, what drove a 15-year-old girl to sexualize herself as thoroughly as Gwen did, and then led her to pull out all the stops to seduce her teacher? What loneliness or abuse or neglect or trauma in her personal life led her to that place? The truth is, the seeds of Gwen's addictions were planted way before she and Paul had their short affair. The affair itself is evidence, a symptom, to me. Her sharing of her plan revealed a compulsive need for attention and affirmation from an older man that almost certainly led back to some sort of dysfunction with her own father. It need not have been as salacious as sexual abuse— it might have just been neglect. Most of us at that age, in that place, were latchkey kids. Our parents, ironically part of what is called the greatest generation, were, in the 1960s, discovering drugs, infidelity, and narcissism on a scale not seen since the 1920s. My mother oscillated between being a super-involved parent and being totally MIA, as she also struggled with two divorces and other numerous failed relationships, and tried and succeeded in becoming a force as an advertising copywriter during the Mad Men era. Others, like my father, were largely absent, seen every other weekend and for a few weeks in the summer. Most of our parents weren't evil, just self-absorbed and perhaps a bit meretricious, being children of the Great Depression. They'd known deprivation, and now they wanted theirs. And we were sometimes mere accoutrements, status objects, reflections of their achievements rather than their loved and cared for children. I suspect that this type of neglect, coupled with her body having developed too fast and too spectacularly, were behind Gwen's haunted life, a life, I may add, that was also full of stunning and varied achievements and incredibly rich experiences. But just imagine a lonely girl of 12 or so who, within a year or two, is suddenly getting massive amounts of male attention. She suddenly got this crazy, scary power, a power she doesn't understand and may feel she doesn't deserve. And it's a power based solely on her looks. She's not seen as a person. Her intelligence and sensitivity are totally occluded by her stellar beauty. Surely this is painful, confusing, and destabilizing. Surely, like all forms of power, it can also lead to temptation and corruption. This is all too human, and yes, it's sad. And as a man, I have often excoriated myself that a woman's beauty has utterly stopped my brain in its tracks, and that sometimes I fail to see any more of her than her looks for a short time after meeting her. But fuck it, it's biology. Arguing with my limbic system is a waste of time, just as arguing with yours is. Interestingly, Gwen used her looks for gain her entire life. She even posed half-naked on the jacket cover of a book she wrote. She learned our society's cruel lesson for women early. Use your looks for gain because your intellect is less important. It may even be viewed as a detriment. That is one of the tragedies of how women are perceived in contemporary American culture. 
How very, very sad and ironic that today's crop of so-called feminists are often found applauding, reframing the self-objectification of these women into almost pure sexual entertainment as empowerment. Again, I ask, what are they teaching the little girls about their worth as human beings? And I also ask, must power dynamics be so simplistic? Must one side have all the power, bear all the responsibility, while the other is portrayed as utterly without power and bearing no responsibility at all? The truth is almost never this cut and dried, and yet that's what everyone seems to want, a simple binary analysis to each issue with a simple binary solution to it. Those with less power, based on how they define power, demand more, and prefer to be victims than to also take responsibility for their part in the dance. The truth is almost always in the gray areas, not in the black and white. The truth is that Paul made a terrible mistake. He was wrong, immoral, and he bears responsibility for his actions. The truth is also that Gwen was a sexually active young woman who actively groomed Paul and she got what she wanted. So yes, she also bore responsibility for her actions. Far from being a helpless child, she wielded enormous power to great effect. And if some women want to pretend this power doesn't exist, they're going to have a hard time squaring that with their fawning over twerking superstars. And lastly, Gwen's seduction of Paul was clearly symptomatic of issues that haunted her for her entire life, not the cause. She had a mixed life. She doubtlessly suffered. She also had many incredible experiences and achieved many things I can only dream of. She loved and was loved, and she still is loved and missed, and her youthful mistakes mar none of that. Rest in power, Gwen. I wish I could have used your real name, but you know who you are. The music for today's episode came from my 2009 release of improvised solo piano music called The Annunciation, which is available for purchase in physical CD form or as an MP3 file or streamed from many sources, including Spotify, Amazon, CD Baby, etc. The Cognitive Dissident is written, recorded, voiced, edited, and produced by me, Samuel Claiborne, for Disreputable Media. 